still, be still. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. He says, be still and know that I am God. All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? It's great to see you. Thanks for being here on this Super Bowl Sunday. Glad the game doesn't start at 11, right? That's where you'd be, so glad you're here. I want to welcome you. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. Uh, can we just say, go Rams? Can we just do that, you know? And, and to be fair, to be fair, it would just be whoever the Patriots are playing is who I'd be rooting for, so... And I know it's not going to be that divisive to start off the day, but we're really glad you're here, no matter who you're rooting for. Yeah, so. <clears throat> but uh, we're going we're gonna to continue in this series today. You saw that video. Uh, we're in a series called Still, and what we're talking about is what do we do with the fears and anxieties that we face? And the fact is, God says so much in his word of what to do with our fear and how we can go to him, how we should go to him with them, because he is God, and he is our refuge and our strength in times of trouble. So we're really glad you're joining us today. If you have a Trinity this week inside, you have notes that look like this. If you want to get those out, that'll help you track with us today. As well as if you have a Bible today, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings is in the former covenant, the Old Testament. If you want to find your way there, huge help. It comes right before 2 Kings. You got it. You're welcome. So find your way, 1 Kings 19. I really want to tell you that I missed you. I was really uh, bummed to be away from you last week. Rick Langer was here, did an amazing job. I got to watch the video this last week. And I'm so grateful for who he is and his connection to Trinity Church as a former pastor, but also just the great way he just communicated God's word about these disciples on the ocean, just afraid, not only afraid of the storms, but even questioning, Jesus, do you even care? And he brought up, he just surfaced some great ideas. And one of the ones that I thought was so compelling was, we need to fear God more than we do the waves. And that's such a powerful truth. It goes back to this idea of when we began this series in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God because I am God. You can trust me. And today what we're doing is we're taking this series another step further in this idea and we're going to be looking today in the Old Testament with a, a great prophet by the name of Elijah. We did Elisha a couple of weeks ago. And what we do is we walk there today. I, I want to say that I'm, I'm so excited about this particular narrative. Because within it, what we've seen is, is often in these cases of fear and anxiety, we're, we are getting an honest look of how people responded. And sometimes in the narratives we've looked at, they responded really, where, really well in their fears. In their anxieties and their concerns, they brought them to God, they brought them to Jesus, and in the midst of that, they saw him be strong. And other times, they have failed. And today is one of those narratives of failure. And what I'm really excited about as we begin to dive into this today, we're going to see some powerful things. And to me, one of the things I really want you to pay attention to is not just Elijah's failure, but more importantly, God's response. How he was there in the midst and how he didn't let Elijah go. 
how he didn't stop caring, how he didn't just kind of drive the hammer down again of, of you've blown it, but he walked with him and he was careful to care for him. And so I want you to see that today as we, uh, as we dive in. What we do every week is we talk about a now what idea. It's more than just a big idea. It's what am I supposed to do this week with this truth? And so you'll see it on the screens. You'll see it in your notes. Here's where we're going today. When you don't experience the power of God, rely upon his presence to remind you of who he is and who you are. And we're going to see that sharply today in our passage. So let's do this. Number one in your notes, after every mountaintop comes a Monday morning. Totally true. After every mountaintop comes a Monday morning. I want to give you the context for the passage we'll be looking at today. Many of us, if you've grown up in church and went to children's church and saw the cool flannel graph stories, you know what is setting up today's narrative. Because it's very powerful, it's very fantastic, very supernatural, and very compelling. Elijah has been called by God to be his mouthpiece. That's really literally what the word prophet means. And it's been powerful to me. We looked at a, 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 his successor, Elisha, a couple of weeks ago. I just in my own devotional time finished the book of Jeremiah, another prophet. And I was just reminded how hard it was to be a prophet. Everybody hated you because you kept bringing truth. That you, these prophets could literally say, thus saith the Lord. They weren't making this stuff up. They weren't, well, this is my idea. These true prophets of Yahweh would say, God says X, and people hated them for it. So Elijah's in that predicament, but he served at really one of the most challenging times in all of Israel's history, because the people who were at the top of the heap the king and queen of the land were the most vile and wickedest, that wickedest, is that a word? Most wicked, that might be the better word. Um, sorry, English grammar's in the room. Uh, but within that, they, these guys were the absolute worst. The Bible even tells us it was King Ahab and King Jezebel. Look, uh, look at the screens, a couple chapters from where we are, 1 Kings 21. It says, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So let me give you context. So God's people have been in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. He's going to use Moses to bring them out, and they're going to wander in the desert due to their own faithlessness for 40 years. But finally, they're on the east side of the Jordan River, now Joshua's at command, and they're going to go into the promised land. And one of the things that God has said is, you're not going into a land that's uninhabited. You're actually going to live in homes you never built. You're going to reap uh, the benefits of vineyards you never planted. So meaning people were already there, but these people were horrible. They had lived opposed to their creator for generations, and God says, I'm going to use you to drive them out. You are going to be my instrument of justice that I have let go on and on and on, nations like the Amorites. So I want you for context to see that the northern kingdom of Israel is being ruled by a guy who's compared to the very people that God used Israel to drive out. That's how bad it had become. That's how much they had turned their back on the unique, not only creator of the universe, but their unique God who'd made himself known, revealed himself to this special group of people, that's how bad things were. So you can imagine any time Elijah opened his mouth, it was met with opposition. 
So here's what's going on. Elijah's on the outs with the king and queen, and there is a drought in the land. It is severe. We've had droughts. We don't right now, but we've had droughts, and we know how bad it can be to not have rain year over year. This is what's going on. It's desolate to the point where Elijah says, hey, we should have a showdown. We should have a showdown to come and, and see which God could elicit rain because we need it badly. So the king and queen stage this event, and they have these, uh, these prophets or priests of this pagan religion, Baal, and they're going to be able to do something to elicit rain. And then there's lonely old Elijah, and, and this is the square off. This is the story you know. And what you remember in the story is, is that these guys are out, they're just completely going crazy, crying out to some God to do something. They're cutting themselves, they're screaming. They do this for hours. It goes on for so long that Elijah makes some great, you gotta love, like remember sometimes you read the Bible sometimes just wrote and you don't listen to what you're reading. Elijah says, maybe your God isn't able to help you and he makes a reference to him probably being in the bathroom. He's just busy doing stuff and he's probably not able to help. So I mean, you gotta love the humor that comes up in scripture. He's totally jabbing at them and it makes them all the more crazy after hours of this. Finally, he says, put this sacrifice on the altar, the altar to Yahweh. And remember, we're in a drought. He says, dump just jugs of water on top of this to really show you at this incredibly wet, dripping, soaked offering. See what Yahweh does. He calls upon God, and God rains fire from heaven, completely consumes everything about the altar. And the people, the people have gathered to watch this. The people say, Yahweh, he is God. Elijah says, so let's be committed to who he is. And as a result, these 450 priests of this pagan religion are all slain right there on the mountain, Mount Carmel. And that's the context of where we go today. That's the story you remember. That's the story that I remember. And I go, this is so powerful. Look what God does. And it's this prophet Elijah that I want us to walk into the next chapter and see how does he respond after the mountaintop on the Monday morning. You're in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. We're going to say this. So, oh, by the way, let me give you a, a comment before we dive in. In that, by the way, one thing I just want to drive home today from the very beginning is that we need to live not just aware but anticipating the Monday mornings. Our problem is, is that we love to live on mountaintops. And I'll, I'll describe a mountaintop like this. A mountaintop might be a missions trip. It might be a camp. It might be just this amazing time that God is working in your life or in the lives of people you're close to, and it's palpable, it's so clear that God is here and God is at work, and you just walk away and you just go, man, if we could just stay here forever. But the reality is, is we always come down off the mountains. We have to. And you can bet on it like death and taxes, Monday mornings always come after the mountaintops. They just do, and the reality is, Monday mornings are the norm, and mountaintops are the exception. We have to grab hold of that. Mount, Monday mornings are the norm. Mountaintops are the exceptions. Look in your notes. Though our mountaintop experiences are profound and amazing, it's on the Monday mornings where we really learn to trust God. It is not hard to trust God on the mountaintops, but it's challenging and it takes faith when we trust him on the Mondays. So here's our passage, 19, verse 1. Now Ahab had told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. That's called an overt death threat. Okay, that's what that is. Look at the next phrase. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Let's unpack this a little bit. Elijah is in the very same city after this amazing outpouring of the power of God. He is in the city where the palace is in Jezreel. And he hears about uh, Jezebel's threat against his life. And here's the thing. What do you do when you receive a death threat, threat from Jezebel? If you're Elijah, you run. Without any consulting of God, without any stopping to consider what God would have him do, he packed up and ran as fast as he could. And what I want you to see in that is that in, in the midst of what he had just experienced, this is exactly his next day response. You see, in the text, is there any hint that God told him that's what he should do? There's nothing. No impression at all. There's no, absolutely, not only of God not telling him, no record of Elijah consulting God. God, what should I do in the midst of this threat against my life? God didn't tell Elijah to go anywhere, but he took off to get his, out of town as fast as he could. A little bit of geography will help you with this. Take a look at the map. By the way, we were having some challenges today, early this morning, with our production stuff, with our, our equipment, and the guys did a great job getting it all put back together. Can we thank them? Because I like being able to show you this map. So they always do, so we were talking in our prayer time, is we just take so many things for granted every Sunday morning that everything works. And then when it doesn't, we kind of freak out. And we just are grateful for people who just week in and week out serve so faithfully. So look at Mount Carmel is where this amazing outpouring of God's power happened. Jezreel, not far away. It's the capital city where the palace is. That's where Elijah hears this news. Uh, Jezebel has sent out a death threat, so he takes off. Now you have to see where he takes off. He doesn't just cross state lines. He crosses into a whole different kingdom. Israel and Judah are separated at this time. Ten nations to the north, two to the south. And he goes to the very bottom of Judah before he even comes up for air. He's in Beersheba all of a sudden, and he's there that fast. And the idea is not the point if Elijah should have stayed to fight, nor is it in some ways even the idea that he took off in flight, which are often the responses that we have to fear and anxiety is fight or flight. The issue is simply this. He acted apart from God's direction and just took off. That's the real challenge with this particular narrative and in his life. What's so great about our mountaintop experiences is that God is so present, so tangible, so real to us. You've had these seasons and moments and experiences where God is so palpable, but it's in the Monday mornings when he seems so distant, so removed, and so far away. In your notes, we hear his voice with great clarity on the mountaintops, but it's as though he's mute when we encounter a Monday morning. We hear his voice with such great clarity at the mountaintops, but it's as though he's mute on a Monday morning. And when we don't feel his power, we're left to our own resources and fears, and we find ourselves in a hopeless spiral. That's how we start today. Let's move on. Number two, or look how it finishes in that part. This is how that clip 
comes to an end. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Let's keep reading. Number two, even when you run away in fear, God still cares for you. Even when you run away in fear, God still cares for you. Remember I told you earlier today, you're going to see Elijah fail at trusting God for things that brought great fear and anxiety. However, what you're going to see is an incredible expression of God's gentleness and kindness. Chapter 19, verse 5, the middle of 5. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head were some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. The journey that God never even said to take is too much for you. Have some more to eat first. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, <clears throat> and the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Rather than give up or even scold Elijah in the midst of his desertion, Yahweh provides him with what he needs while he's actually running. And this narrative, this part is so powerful to me. Notice the provision of food that he provides for Elijah even while he's in escape mode. I'm just getting out of here. I'm not consulting God. God, I don't care what you want. I'm afraid and I'm running. And I want you to even notice the precise wording here. It didn't just say an angel. It said the angel of the Lord. Numerous times in the former covenant, we'll see that phrase, the angel of the Lord. And sometimes, and, and my hunch is it's one of these, that's actually what theologians call a Christophany. Think of it this way. We celebrate Jesus' arrival at Christmas coming to flesh or coming to earth in flesh. But the question is, if we believe that the second member of the Trinity was eternal, what was he doing before he came and, and uh, immersed himself in our planet? And the reality is, is that he enters into narratives in the Old Testament, especially with this phraseology. And any time that an angel receives worship, we know that's exactly who that is. That's not an angel because other angels reject it and say, don't do that. But the angel of the Lord receives it. And this, to me, seems like a powerful story related to even Jesus showing up, pre-incarnate Christ, showing up to meet the real and tangible needs of Elijah. How powerful. He is running away, and God is there providing for him along the way. In your notes, in the midst of his rebellion and running, God was still caring for Elijah. In the midst of his rebelling and running, God was still caring for for Elijah. Let's do some more geography, and this will help you really see what we're talking about. Take a look at this map, and you'll see even more of the, the disconnect. So if you, the, the words are hard to read, but look way up at the top. That was Jezreel, and this, the first blue arrow ended up at Beersheba. That's where he went at first, and then ditched his servant and kept going. Then he's going to go from Beersheba all the way down to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. More about that in just a minute. But here, if we look at that distance, that's 200 miles. Just look geographically. You can't get much more south until you're in the Red Sea. Okay, so he is really running in the opposite direction. If you go all the way back up to Jezreel, he is about as far away as you can get on foot. It makes me think of another prophet, another guy named Jonah, that God says, go northeast to Nineveh. He gets on a boat to go northwest to Tarshish. 
This is the same thing, and, I, and you know the Jonah story. You know he goes in the opposite direction, but I don't know if we've ever connected that dot to this story about Elijah. He did the same thing. God deals with Jonah a little bit differently than he does with Elijah. In this case, he's caring for him, taking care. Now, you'll notice that distance of 200 miles. Sometimes we look at that and we go, man, that was miraculous. Did you hear what, though? It said he did that in 40 days. So that's an average of about five miles a day. I don't walk for a living, but I'm pretty sure that that's about the clip I could do and so could you. So what I'm trying to say is, is that's what he was doing. I'm on a journey. It took 40 days. I averaged about five miles a day. That's not a, a superhuman, spectacular thing to do. But as he did, he had 40 days to consider what he was doing. And every day it was the same. Get up and keep walking the opposite direction of Jezreel maybe more importantly, of Jezebel. What I want you to see in this part of the narrative is to me a powerful thing. As we've been walking through this series, one of the things we've talked about, and, and as you have talked to me about how you appreciate the theme because it's so relatable, one of the things that I want to really help us all with today on another degree of relatability is this. We all fail in the way that we handle fear and anxiety. And in the midst of those failures, what can often happen, especially if you're someone who has put your faith in Christ, you're kind of aware of what the Bible teaches about fear and how we ought to bring them to God. So you have not only the situation that's causing you anxiety, but you know you shouldn't be bound by it. You know that you shouldn't be controlled and paralyzed by fear. So now on top of the issue, there's a nice layer of guilt. This makes bad upon bad. And what I want you to see about this passage today, I want you to see a prophet who failed to believe that God could protect his life, who's running. I want you to see a God who's caring for him in the midst and meeting needs and not giving up on him. That's why I love this narrative so much because I believe that's what God does for us. He knows we are but dust. And even in the midst of our failures, he doesn't wipe our, his hands clean of us and just say, you know what, just do your own thing, hope it all works out well. He is still walking, still taking care of us. I want you to see the phrase that we finished with, and I know it's even the title of the message today. You might have initially even read it this way. What are you doing here, Elijah? I want you to know, I don't think that's the tone of it at all. What are you doing here, Elijah? Notice what God did not say. God did not say, I demonstrated my power on a mountaintop, and yet you run when a mere mortal threatens your life. He didn't say that. He didn't say 450 priests of Baal oppose you, and yet you're afraid of a girl. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I've led you every step of the way, and yet you create your own path rather than trust me. He doesn't say that. I think all those questions could have been appropriate. But he asked in a very gentle way, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you, my mouthpiece, my spokesman, the one that I've entrusted with the very words of Almighty God, what are you doing here? What are you doing running from a woman who worships a God who's as much alive as a rock? What are you doing here? What are you doing in this place that is literally as far as you can run in the opposite direction? 
I want you to know that God doesn't condemn. And that God doesn't assume, and I know it's even a weird thing to ascribe to God. God can't really assume because he knows everything. But look what God does. He gives him this honest question and he receives an honest answer. 1 Kings 19.10, he, Elijah, replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Can I tell you something? If you read the rest of the narrative, Elijah doesn't say anything that isn't correct. Everything he says is accurate. It's an accurate assessment of what has happened and where he stands today. And so I want to do something similar. I put this message together four years ago. I I told you I was gone last week. I was with that crazy bunch of guys from a church in Rancho Cucamonga called Flipside who keep inviting me to their men's retreat seven years in a row. I said, you guys are nuts. You have no idea of who good speakers are because you keep just asking me back. So I, I, I gave, we did a series four years ago on the life of Elijah, and that's where I first put together this message. And what I did in that point four years ago was share, these are five things that are causing me to fear, causing me to tremble, causing me to feel stuck. And I could share with you the Monday mornings I'm facing right now, because I sure am. But I wanted to share with you these five instead because I want you to see as we close today the perspective that four years ago has now looking at it. Four years ago, we were really worried about how we were going to afford college for my son. Jackson was a senior in high school. I gave this message almost four years ago today. It was the last weekend of January. And we were staring at the idea of we had no college savings, no idea of how God was going to work it out. We had not even at that point even known what college he was going to go to. This is in the middle of his senior year. There was some stress related to that, not only on our part, but on his. Just before I'd given this message, about a month before, our minivan died. And uh, for some of us, like, so what? You know, all minivans should. But it did. <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> And it was the car that our son was driving himself and his sister to school in, so we had to figure something out. And what brought with that was the sense a car was paid off and very little insurance. Now, all of a sudden, we had a payment and a a higher insurance rate, and that caused a degree of fear and anxiety. This time four years ago, I was still at High Desert Church, and in my role as, as campus lead, I not only had been for months serving as junior high director as well, because we didn't have one, And also then the children's pastor, just about a month before I gave this message, also resigned. So I was going to be walking into doing three jobs at once. And I'd already done two for seasons before and thought, this is going to be horrendous. When I gave this message four years ago, I'd had surgery just two months prior for a lot of nasal polyps that I'd had that had kept me from being able to taste and smell for five years. I was afraid the surgery wasn't going to take, and it was just going to be another legacy of of problems for that. And four years ago, my mom had stage four melanoma cancer. That's what was going on when I gave this message four years ago. Those were the things that had me back in the corner that I was wondering, God, I have seen your power. I have seen your power displayed mightily in and around my life, but I don't know how you're going to get us through these things. Yahweh asks the question, Elijah gives the answer. Let's see what Yahweh does next. Number three in your notes. On the Monday mornings, God often speaks in a whisper. 
on the Monday mornings, God often speaks with a whisper. 1 Kings 19, 11. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. By the way, any good Jew knows that's not a good thing. You don't want to see God because if you do, you're going to die. And by the way, he'd already prayed, Lord, kill me. So he guess I just walked for 40 days so he could kill me here. That's about what's going to happen. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Yahweh tells uh, Elijah that he's going to pass by, and like I said, this elicited great fear, right fear, the kind of fear Rick talked about last week, fear God over everything else. This was a fearful thing. No one should be able, no sinful human being should be able to see a holy God, but as God comes out, what he does is he demonstrates his power again. Remember, just days before, now about a month and a half before, fire had rained down from heaven consuming this sacrifice. So God, through this demonstration of power, shows himself strong. An earthquake begins to shake everything there. The wind becomes ripping through, splitting rocks apart. Fire, maybe even the very same kind of fire that had fallen from heaven, fire shows up on the scene. And in all of those, the text says, and God was not in them. Wouldn't we think that generally when we feel like our lives are not going to work out, that, that fear and anxiety grips us, we're like, God, if you just show up powerfully. God showed up powerfully, but he wasn't in those things. It was in the whisper. And you'll notice, by the way, that this whole time the text tells us that once he heard the whisper, he put on his cloak and he came to the mouth of the cave. What does that mean where he was before? cowering in the back, maybe afraid, this is judgment on my life, but it's not. It's God pulling him close and with a whisper saying, draw near. He comes to the mouth of the cave and he hears the very same, very same word for word question. Elijah, what are you doing here? I think about God's amazing ways and the ways so often that his presence, just the fact that he's here, so many times is even more powerful than his power in our lives. Just the fact that we know we're not alone. In the fact that he asks the same question, it's as though he's giving a redo for the Debbie Downer answer that Elijah gave the first time, right? Like, hey, I asked you the first time, all you could say is how horrible everything is. Let me, let's try it again. I'll ask you the same thing. A chance for him to answer anew now that he's in contact with Yahweh. Look at his response, 1914. He, Elijah, replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He gives the exact same answer, word for word, that he gave before. And can I just tell you, that's what not to do when God asks you the same question twice. 
It'd be the same thing. You're raising children and you have a five-year-old who's done something and broken something in the house and you know that she did it. I just made it a she, sorry. You know that she did it and as you're asking her, you're saying, hey, what happened here? And she's saying, oh, it's always my brother. He's such a moron. He did this again and blah, blah. And you're like, okay, let's try this a second time. Let's just kind of regroup. I know what you're saying. Let's try this again. How did this happen? Well, you know, my brother, he's such a moron, he just, she goes all over it again. And when a parent gives you a second attempt to think of it in a new way, or in this case, the right way, you don't answer the same way you did last time. Word for word, Elijah says the exact same thing. But look how it plays out. Look at this contention that Elijah has with Yahweh. Number four in your notes, on the Monday mornings, we forget that God still has a purpose for us to fulfill. And the Monday mornings, we forget that God still has a purpose for us to fulfill. Chapter 19, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Here's a powerful thing I want you to see today. Number one, not only is God showing Elijah, you're not alone, I'm here with you. He's also telling him related to the community of Yahweh followers, you're not alone. 7,000 in this northern kingdom of Israel, and that's a really small number compared to how many people lived in Israel, but 7,000 have not bent the knee. You are not alone. And I want you to see this. In your notes, how great is it to have God's perspective on our lives? What Elijah saw about himself was accurate but incomplete. Remember we said earlier, Elijah's complaint is completely accurate. Everything he said of what his plight was and the way the people of Israel were living was true, but it wasn't the whole picture. It wasn't what God could see. It wasn't what God was aware of. And how often in our minds can we be backed into the corner and we can see things that let's say even with a dose of reality, we can see what's accurate, but we can never see what's complete. That alone is God's. You remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Elisha, his successor, and Elisha gets up in the morning, his aide comes out and he sees this an army uh, encamped around their city, ready to destroy them, and Elisha comes out completely even keel, and he just says, God, would you show my servant what he can't see? Open his eyes, Lord, and his eyes are open, and he can see the armies of heaven on fire surrounding that army. What the servant saw was accurate, but it wasn't complete. What Elijah saw in this situation was accurate, but it wasn't complete. The Israelites had rejected God's covenant. Can I just tell you, that's why Elijah had a job. That was the job of the prophet, is to remind the people, bring them back to Yahweh. They had torn down God's altars. But God would use Elijah to build them up just like he had done the chapter before in 1 Kings 18. They had put the prophets to death with the sword. 
Did you read what I just read? One of the things that he is going to go do is to anoint Jehu, and you read it. Jehu, anoint him king over Israel. There's never two kings in Israel at once. So that means that Ahab's time is coming to an end. And he's already told Elijah, don't worry about Ahab, he's done. Elijah complains, they're trying to kill me too. But God was going to preserve his life. I want you to know this is more than seeing the silver lining in the clouds. Some of you are married to optimists, and this drives you nuts, right? You're a realist. You would never call yourself a pessimist. You're just a realist. You're a realist, and you see things as, you, as they are, but it's always that spouse who sees the silver lining in everything. I know our lives seem like they're in the toilet, but it's all going to be great, and you just want to smack them. No, it's not. We don't recover from this. And what I want you to see is this passage is not just optimistic thinking. Sometimes having Pollyanna-ish eyes and lenses aren't helpful because it's just hoping and better. When what we can do is ground ourselves in the truth of God and the things that we know are going to be true. If not in this life, in the next So God gives him perspective. God gives him something that he didn't have before because he's sovereign and he's in control. So I told you, I shared with you things that were really troubling me, us, four years ago. Here's now where those things stand. My son's going to graduate this semester. It's pretty cool. And what's exciting, yeah? What's exciting about that, though we've incurred some debt along the way, and though so has he, It's not ginormous, and we see God's provision throughout in a way that we never saw was going to happen. And Jackson has been prepared for ministry in such a way that he's already doing it. And I love what God has done with his college experience. It's now just his sister that we're freaking out about, so that's where we're at with that. (laughs) So I told you that our our minivan had died just a, a month before I gave this message it was fascinating in the process of trying to find another car and at the right expense and everything, God led us actually to a family here in Redlands whose extended family goes to Trinity Church. And as we have that, we've had a car that we've been able to handle the payments, able to handle the insurance. It drove great for Jackson, it gro- drove great for Aaliyah, and is driving great for Kendi now. And we praise God for that. When I think about the responsibilities that I was going to be under up at HDC in this season without two guys on my team being there, What God really did throughout that time is it really taught me how we can do more sometimes with less and how we can actually distribute responsibilities, make things work when times are tight. And I was really grateful for that because I've walked that road. It's not just theory to me. I know it and I know how to lead better because of it. That surgery that I had had two months prior, if you look at my girth, you can tell I am eating and tasting just fine. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's not a problem, okay? And I think about my mom. My mom would pass away two months after I gave this message. And for risk of saying, wow, out of all these five things, they all worked out pretty great. No, they did. My mom's never been better off. Absolutely believe that. And my mom, I believe, has never been better off because she's with Jesus right now. And my mom is not with Jesus because she was such a moral person. My mom is not with Jesus because she went to church so much. 
My mom is with Jesus because she absolutely believed she needed him to be her savior. These were the things that gripped my life four years ago that I thought, God, these aren't ever going to get better. Look what perspective does. Look what time does to show us. And I bring them up to you today to say the things that have us back in the corner, the things that we have even in recent journeys failed to trust God for, we've not gone to him with our fear and with our anxiety. These are the things that you can also trust him with today, just like I need to. We're not done. Perspective from God's angle delivered via his presence. And I want you to see this, finish with this in your notes today. When you come down off the mountaintop, don't demand that your everyday life needs to be filled with those amazing demonstrations of God's power. That's what heaven is for. That's what heaven is for. That's what keeps us leaning forward. That's what keeps us anticipating eternity because we know all of this gets made new. We know all of this gets rectified. We know in all of these things, Jesus wins. And that's why we keep going. But for the Monday mornings, when you don't experience the power of God, rely upon his presence to remind you of who he is and whose you are. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a people who have been hearing much in these last five weeks about your um, ability to be a refuge and the call for us to be still and to know that you are God. And we want to be a people who don't just hear information, but we want these truths to sink deeply into our lives. We want these truths to be the things that we do, how we respond even now, not just next time, but now to the anxieties and fears that we face. But God, I especially want to thank you for this narrative today because along these last five weeks, we have failed. And we are grateful to know that you didn't stop caring. We are grateful to know that you didn't just wipe our hands free of us and just say they're never going to get it. You keep walking with us. You patiently keep loving us. And we are so grateful for that. You might be here today and you would say, you know, Todd, I, I know some things about Jesus. I know some things you've talked about today, but I don't really know him. I've never responded to his invitation to be forgiven and to truly be his. And I have great news. If you are ready to do that today, you can right here and right now. There's no class to attend. There's no hoops to go through. It's you and God simply saying, A, I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I admit that I've been living life on my terms, God, not yours, and I know there's a problem in the relationship. B, I believe. I believe that Jesus did live a sinless life. I believe that he did die a sacrificial death. I believe that he was raised supernaturally on the third day. I believe that Jesus is the only savior available. C, I choose. I choose to put my weight and my trust, my hope squarely and what Jesus has done for me, not what I can do for myself. And as a result, I want to live out of Jesus' power and spirit. I want to live out his example with my life. That's your response to this great news called the gospel. And I would encourage you, don't get out of your chair until you make that decision today. Father, we love you. Thank you so much 
for your gracious, kind way of dealing with us when we forget. We pray in Jesus' great name, amen.